You're listening to the Wool Academy podcast. This is episode 113. Hi, Wool Academy podcast listeners. Welcome to the Wool Academy podcast. This is episode 113. And this is an episode where I will be not talking to Evan Thompson, but I will be talking to Tuna Tobiasen. And she has been already a guest on the podcast in episode three. So I think that's like three years or more ago. And I've invited her to join me on the podcast once again, because she has so many interesting things to say about uh, Norwegian wool, but also other regional wools within Europe. And we discuss different projects that she's working on and different issues that are all connected to the local European wools. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll talk to you again at the end. Bye for now. Tune, it's so lovely to have you on the Wool Academy podcast once again, because we did speak uh, some years ago. You were actually episode number three, so the very, very beginning. So some of our listeners might not have listened to that early episode. So to Shame get us, on them. No. Yes. <laughs> And to get us started, I would like to ask you once again to give a short introduction about yourself, please. Okay, yes, uh, uh, I'm Norwegian and I'm a journalist by trade. Uh, and I've been working uh, mainly in magazines uh, for most of my life. Uh, I worked uh, for the longest time as an editor of a fashion magazine, uh, which no longer exists. Um, and from that, I went on to freelance. So I've been freelancing for, among others, eco textile news uh, and some also trade journals. Uh, so uh, so I, I'm writing articles right now for different trade journals around the world. Yeah. But is it correct to say that you are pretty much specialized on wool and in connection with sustainability? Uh, that's been become uh, most of uh, what you can say that I write mainly about because that's what uh, I've been most interested in. Uh, so that um, uh, also uh, together with the Ingen Grimstad Klepp, uh, who you also interviewed in mm -hmm. the podcast, uh, we've been writing books on the subject too. So we've written several books uh, about uh, the wool, about uh, knitting with the Norwegian wool, uh, and uh, also now about sustainable issues uh, on all fibers and, and, and clothing in general uh, that are sadly so far only in the region. <laughs> yes, that was, I was about to say that I always wish I could read your books, but so far they haven't been translated. I hope that changes uh, yeah. in the near future. Um, yeah, and why I wanted to reconnect with you um, is because, yeah, I've started working in Albania with Flockwool and there we have a lot of different issues and you have been tackling those uh, issues already um, with a lot of different projects in Norway and also neighboring countries. Um, so, yeah, I would like to maybe touch on all these different projects and maybe to structure it a little bit better for our listeners. I think these the projects that we'll be talking about will cover topics such as um, restoring local infrastructure, finding a good application for 
coarse wool because Norway is also a country with sheep who has uh, very coarse wool. And last but not least, also about regenerative farming. So, Sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> so we have a lot <laughs> to cover today. So I think the first topic we should dive into is a, a recent project and one that you're also going to work on in the future. And that's about finding a product application for course wool. And in this specific project, I think it's, it's a collaboration with the country Poland. Yes. So tell us more about the project, which is called Volume, or how do you pronounce it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure how we're going to pronounce it, but we, we called it Volume. Uh, because um, we want to uh, be working a lot with uh, with um, uh, uh, sound absorbing uh, uh, different structures that that can be made from wool, uh, and so it goes both to the volume of, of sound, but then using the word wool uh, spelled so it's spelled W O O L U M E. Uh, so it's sort of a wordplay on that. Uh, and it's a Polish-Norwegian collaboration because there's, um, uh, uh, there's a fund, a funding program that actually um, funds collaborations between Norway and Poland. Uh, and uh, they're quite big uh, projects and uh, they have to do with everything from medicine to just about anything. Uh, but they also have an uh, agricultural program so we uh, have been already in dialogue with uh, our partners in Fiesco Biala in Poland, who are at the, the, uh, the technical university there because we met them uh, many years ago at the uh, conference uh, that the IWTO actually sent us to, um, which was the Natural Fibers uh, Conference. Uh, and uh, we met them there at lunch and started talking to them and had a great dialogue about the, the differences in, in uh, the infrastructures uh, between Norway and, and Poland when it came to wool. Uh, because um, uh, since uh, these are uh, fiber uh, engineers or uh, they work with, with um, textile engineering, uh, they were very interested in, in wool because they saw in their region in the, the uh, Carpathian Mountains <laughs> in, in Poland, that they had uh, sheep there uh, where the wool was uh, burned and, and then just uh, uh, disposed of uh, and it wasn't used at all because it's very coarse. Uh, and so the sheep farmers um, uh, couldn't really make use of the wool at all. Um, and at the same time, they do still have some uh, textile industry uh, located in, in the area, especially working with carpets and tufting, uh, tufted carpets. Uh, and also they ha uh, have a hat uh, factory. Uh, and so we were there and visited uh, both uh, facilities uh, a while back because then we had a small fund uh, from, from uh, the, the, the same uh, pot of money. Uh, and um, it was super interesting. I mean, have you ever been to a hat factory? No. It's so fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and also seeing the, the, the carpet factory was, was super interesting. But they, of course, used uh, imported uh, raw materials. Uh, and uh, this is, is sort of the big thing all over Europe, you know. They've been using imported fibers uh, when uh, right next door uh, are sheep farmers who are actually throwing away all their wool. Uh, 
uh, and this happens in Denmark, this happens in, uh, it's been happening in Sweden, it's in Finland, uh, everywhere, more or less, except uh, uh, the only countries that really have a good infrastructure in, if you look at Europe uh, today, are Norway, uh, Iceland, UK, and Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Uh, who still have a functioning, uh, a good functioning uh, infrastructure. Uh, and for some of these countries, it's privately uh, owned and operated, for example, in Switzerland and, and Iceland. Uh, while in, in the UK, uh, you have an or, uh, the organization, of course, that, that handles this, the British World uh, Marketing Board. Well, in Norway, we have two operations who handle this. So uh, one is private and the other is a farmer's cooperative. Uh, and um, uh, so in Poland, there was no infrastructure whatsoever. Uh, and uh, so th the project then goes to looking at how can they find good applications for the coarse wool into products uh, where they don't need to import fibers from uh, the other side of the world uh, just because um, uh, they don't have the infrastructure. So they need to, you know, to build up a value chain locally that can handle this uh, and uh, th this is something that's now starting to develop uh, in, in different countries in Sweden they, they've started working with this where they uh, they started up a scouring mill uh, on Gotland so that um, uh, and I've just been talking to a lot of fin Finnish uh, uh, different uh, companies uh, and actors in, in the value chain uh, and they're starting to to ask for the same thing there, and they want uh, there they they would like the government uh, to or uh, the authorities then to to uh, to get involved, because uh, it seems that at some you, you need some sort of funding at some point in time because it, uh, uh, machinery, uh, the, a scouring mill or uh, set up for a, a, a woolen mill, it's it's not cheap. You know, yeah. uh, so, you, so you really need some sort of, of uh, uh, either government backing or EU backing or, or somebody who can step in and, and help out. Mm. Uh, and um, um, luckily now uh, we are seeing a, a change in, in the whole way that the EU is talking about this local, uh, the need for, for local, using the local resources better. Uh, and they're mainly talking about it when it comes to food of course, because they see agriculture as food and only mm -hmm. as food. Uh, well, they're sort of blind to the fact that agriculture uh, and uh, farming offers other products that can be used for other functions. Uh, so it's, it's sort of keeping telling them that you have to remember that actually the landscape can give you other, other services and other, other products. Uh, and so, uh, in in the uh, volume volume, <laughs> whatever you call it, <laughs> uh, uh, application, uh, we stress this a lot, uh, and um, we actually got top marks for the application. We got like the, the highest <laughs> marks. <laughs> of, uh, uh, yeah, so we were super proud. Um, and um, so the project will go to them using the resources that you have available in the best possible way instead of uh, what seems to be the, the, the thinking of most industry today is, okay, I'm going to produce this thing. Uh, where can I find the cheapest uh, resource to, to make it? Uh, and they don't really look at 
the the resource itself as uh, you know what what can it offer and what can you make from it. So it's it's going the opposite way around. It's uh, saying that okay, we have the resource. What what can it be used best for? Uh, and um, of course, if if you're doing wall wall hangings or something that uh, is going to absorb sound, uh, it doesn't matter how coarse the wool is, really. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's not next to your skin, uh, and you're not going to be touching it or anything. It's just going to be there, you know, uh, as something decorative uh, and something that that um, uh, because. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but but the it, hearing problems is is a very serious uh, uh, physical disability that is growing because uh, people are listening uh, earplugs all the time, loud music, uh, and so uh, and especially here in Scandinavia where we have very sort of raw interiors uh, with very little textiles uh, because it's uh, you know the the Scandi look is yeah. is very. <laughs> Naked. Very popular, yeah. <laughs> very popular. Minimalistic, uh, minimalistic, uh, and and hard surfaces mainly, you know, and that means that the sound is just bouncing around because it has no nowhere to go. So uh, if you go to a restaurant, for example, in Oslo, you can hardly hear what they say on the other side of the table because of uh, the lack of sound absorbing uh, elements. So that uh, uh, we've been uh, also in contact with a lot of interior decorators and interior architects, and they are, are very much aware of this problem and want ways to deal with it. So there's a market out there, and there's you know there's some products that are today filling that void uh, and and offered, but I I think there's room for much more. Um, and I have two questions with that. So the first question is, why did we somehow lose this um, expertise of making use of very coarse wool? Because probably in the past, people did do something with the coarse wool, but then it seems now like nobody's interested in coarse wool, nobody wants it, and nobody has an idea what to do with it. So why do you think that happened? Uh, I think it's part of the of the way the industry has uh, sort of specialized itself and developed and become this global industry uh, and, a, and a very global market where uh, price has been super important. But also, uh, of course, um, wool has been um, the, the importance of softness is, has sort of uh, become the, the mantra of, uh, you know, wool isn't itchy, you know, this isn't itchy wool. Uh, and and it's like there's there's wool has always had this sort of yeah but it's itchy you know mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but it, it all always depends on the use what you're using it for if you you know I'm wearing a Cardetro uh, top now which I'm sure you recognize <laughs> I think you have one of them yeah too. I have the same in blue yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I have them in all colors um, um, uh, that's next to skin. Uh, and that, you know, has to be um, be something that is below 28 microns uh, for you to actually want to, as, at least most people, uh, we know all know that Ingen can wear anything next to skin. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, most of us uh, prefer something that is, you know, around uh, 18, 19 uh, microns when it's next to skin. But wool can be used for so much more, um, and um, uh, especially in the interiors. Mm. 
And then my second follow-up question is, so how did you go about, I mean, you now kind of decided on the wool panels, like for the acoustics, but how mm. did you, you know, find that product application? And will there be more research maybe to find other applications? Yeah, uh, because uh, that's mainly because they have this, uh, this factory that, that produces the, uh, you know, carpeting and, and tufted uh, carpets in the, air, the city area, you know, so it's, it's the, the direct link to what industry actually exist there you know mm -hmm. um uh, but at the same time they also want to look at other applications for example with um, uh, making mats that you can uh, put out in nature in in fields uh, to add to the uh, to the um, and that would be you know the the courses of the world that is full of vegetable matter that is the this uh, oh you can't use it for anything you know so that nothing becomes waste uh and um and so that will bring it back to the to the agriculture so it's, so that's you know, then it's, like fertilizers um, yes mm -hmm. exactly bringing nutrients yeah so uh and and some uh, some work has been done already on that so it's not you know it's not a completely new idea that nobody else thought of it it's been, being done and it's also here in norway they've been using the uh you know the the wool that is full of vegetable matter that is just dirty and just you know that the industry doesn't even want to look at uh they've been using it to to have um you know underneath uh pathways uh because some pathways you really need some sort of, of structure uh before you put the sand or or uh, the gravel on it uh and people have been using plastic mm. to do that which is horrible because the plastic disintegrates after uh, a while uh, so now they're looking at wool as an application for that. Okay. Well, I wish you lots of success with that the application. It hasn't yet been accepted, right? Or you're still yeah, the, waiting? The, the application, when uh, we got uh, the top marks, and it's, go it's going to start in uh, September, October. Okay. Well, congratulations. So, uh, yeah. And so we're going to launch it at probably at the Baltic uh, uh, Wool Conference, which is going to take place in October. Wow. Okay. That sounds amazing. And then we will catch up once you have more results from that. Yeah. Okay. So we already talked a little bit while we talked about finding product applications, we already dived in a little bit into, you know, having lost infrastructure mm. for wool and rebuilding it. And you have been actually working a lot on this in Norway. Um, so there are two projects. Uh, one is called Viking gold and from that you had a new project called cruise or cruise cruise yeah cruise. um so take us a little bit more into into those projects and what you've mm. done there uh, the, the very the very first world project we had was valuing norwegian wool uh, which was uh, financed by the norwegian research council uh who have actually taken a large interest in wool um and um uh, that was also led by by cfo or as they're called in english the uh, norwegian uh, consumption institute cfo at oslo metropolitan university oh, that's long <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh ingen has been uh, the leader both of valuing norwegian wool and the curious project uh, and um, when we started working with the Valuing Norwegian Wool uh, project, there were very few end product, uh, products in Norway that you could actually tie to the Norwegian value chain, uh, or even know if there was Norwegian wool in, in uh, the products. So there were knitting yarns, 
but that was that was not told uh, specifically on on you know this when you bought the the balls of yarn, you you had to really look and delve into it and and uh, so it was it wasn't lifted up in any way. Uh, also, there were some sweaters from uh, Dal of Norway, uh, Dale of Norway. Uh, that had uh, Norwegian wool, but aside from that, there was hardly any products that you could find with Norwegian wool, except for maybe some throws um, uh, from uh, uh, different companies. So even the Norwegian sweater wasn't made of Norwegian wool? Not necessarily, kind of, yeah. no. no. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but uh, during that uh, valuing Norwegian project um, period, uh, valuing Norwegian wool project, sorry, um, they, um, uh, the interest from media uh, grew a lot, you know, so, and everybody was like, what? We're not using our Norwegian wool in all these products? Uh, why not? You know, so, uh, uh, and what they'd seen from uh, Norilia and Fafland, the, the, the ones who collect the, the wool in Norway, was that the, the amount of wool used in Norway was just going down, 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 and the amount exported was going up. Uh, and they were not getting uh, good price, specifically good prices for for the wool. So it was like it was a question of time before the whole infrastructure actually would collapse. Also in Norway, mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons why why Ingen wanted uh, these projects. Uh, and she'd been trying to get projects like this for many years before we got the value in the original wool project. And when that ended, we sort of came to an end point where we had an exhibit, and we were you know trying to find different products that we could use in the exhibit. And we found, you know, a few things that we could, could have there. But we had uh, identified that the Norwegian uh, sheep farmers were very interested in, in actually uh, having their wool end up in good design products uh, that they could be proud of uh, instead of just the, the wool disappearing into this uh, big hole where they didn't see the results uh, in any way, you know? Because it's like they're doing all this work, and for what? Uh, and so um, um, uh, we decided to apply for some funding from uh, uh, um, it was an organization called Kreal Nord, which was cre the creative industries in the Nordic region, and it was funded by the uh, Nordic Council of Ministers, uh, and they generally gave money to cultural events, like uh, if you want to do a poetry festival, you'd ask for funds from them. Then uh, we decided that we wanted to do um, a project with the Viking tech, the, the tradition of textiles from the Viking times. Because uh, as you uh, may know, our, the Vikings are mainly famous for <laughs> pillaging, <laughs> attacking and um, stealing, <laughs> but they were also uh, tradesmen uh, and uh, women and they, they had a fantastic textile um, heritage. Okay. Uh, uh, they were master weavers. Um, uh, I don't know if you know that the, the sails on the Viking boats uh, were either silk or wool. Oh, I didn't uh, know. And if they were in wool, um, they were not, not naturally water repellent because of the, the uh, very coarse uh, outer wool uh, from the Viking sheep, the, the old breeds. So uh, soak up with water and get very heavy, it would actually... Mm, yeah, it would just sort of run off uh, mm -hmm. because of the very, very coarse uh, 
uh, fibers. And also they, they sailed around in, in open boats, uh, which, you know, rain would come, you know, the water would splash over them. So they, they needed wool as protection to, for themselves. Uh, so there's a rich history of of, uh, of how you know they they did cover themselves with, with uh, uh, their time their times raincoats sort of you know mm. so um, uh, we went into this and started studying it from the archaeological perspective uh, because they they did find um, um, uh, a tunic uh, that melted out of a glacier because all the glaciers all over the world are melting now because mm -hmm. of global warming. Uh, and so they found, uh, found a tunic from year 400 that was whole. Uh, it had been frozen in, in the ice since year 400. Uh, and it was in a diamond twill weave. So uh, then uh, the archaeologists that we worked with said that, you know, that was a very usual um, uh, type of, of uh, weaving pattern in Viking times. So we decided to use the, the diamond twill and, as, as, and develop a completely new uh, material that we called Viking gold. Uh, and that um, uh, is uh, woven then in this diamond twill, so that they sorted the the uh, the wool on different shades. So you get a sort of grayish shade, mm -hmm. and then you get a whiter shade, uh, and then they wove it uh, in the pattern, so that uh, if you hold it uh, different um, angles in the light, you will see the diamond twill um, um, pattern emerge, and it's super nice. And everybody who sees this like falls in love with the material. Uh, and we had some designers work with it and make some um, some um, clothing with it. And um, uh, I don't know if I should tell you a secret, but it's going to the material is going to be part of um, a TV program uh, that they're going to film this fall. Um, a, mm. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to uh, some um, um, sewing enthusiasts are going to get to work with the material. Ah, uh, so it gets more exposure. It gets more exposure, and uh, the Norwegian broadcasting uh, company are super interested in it and really want to uh, do a lot with it in social media and maybe even make an exhibit uh, of uh, mm -hmm. everything that comes out of it. So we'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can keep the secret though. If we record it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm not saying which program, right? Okay. So then it's still a secret. Uh, and also there's another little secret and that's that the the um, king and the queen have used the material uh, at their summer place in uh, the hills outside of Oslo uh, oh. and furniture there when they upholstered, upholstered some of their furniture they used them oh, great. so uh, it has a little royal backing now <laughs> <laughs> But, um, and so when that project finished, which was uh, also a cooperation between CIFO uh, then, and the, at that point in time was Norwegian Fashion Institute, which later became Norwegian Fashion Hub, uh, and also myself, who, was, uh, who led the project. And it was a cooperation then between Iceland and Norway, because Iceland also has, of course, a lot of this Viking heritage. Uh, 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 and then uh, when that finished, uh, we uh, had another uh, application and that was for Kyrus and Kyrus in Norwegian means crimp. Okay. And that's because the, the wool in uh, the Norwegian uh, wool, it has exceptional crimp, uh, especially the, the crossbred wool. 
uh, and uh, the story goes that um, uh, if you have a, a carpet or and the table has been standing on it for 20 years and you move it, then the Norwegian wool will just bounce back up again immediately, even though there'll you know be these little markings where the table has stood. As soon as you remove, they'll bounce back. That's and is that quite unusual for um, for coarse wool to have such a crimp? Because we always know uh, it, in it, it varies. I think uh, I think it. Um, uh, I I don't you remember Tony Barman who was uh, mm -hmm. the wool guy in, in Norway in, in Norilia. He uh, he says it's down to to the way they they feed during the summer. Uh, so uh, and that they live outside uh, all the time during the summer, so that they they get sort of uh, the hardy hard, hardiness through the the weather uh, and what they eat. But um, I don't think anybody's uh, uh, studied this uh, academically or uh, technically. So mm -hmm. uh, I I can't really explain it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Fair enough. <laughs> but um, so in the, in the cruise project, the, the, this thing there was specifically to look at some of the breeds uh, and some of the wool that was having a problem within the system. Uh, so we were looking at the old Norse breed, which is sort of the, the uh, father of all sheep in, um, in the Nordic region. Uh, and it, it's the same way that the wolf is the father of all dogs. So it's 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 a breed that that isn't really a breed because it contains all the the um, the uh, gene pool to become any type of sheep. Okay. Yeah, and they became nearly extinct at some point in time, but now you know we we they are specifically protected because of that they actually uh, have this gene pool to become any sheep, and they're dual coated sheep, so in that way they are more like uh, you know cashmere. Uh, because they have a, 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 a the cover wool, and then they have the the very soft downy uh, um, uh, under wool. So, uh, which is super soft, it can be down to like uh, 12, 13, 14 microns. But mm, it's yeah. it's a it's a very short staple, so it's very hard to to spin. But there's a micro spinning mill outside of Oslo now, just. Over, which is called actually Oslo Micro uh, Micro Mill, um, that have started spinning it the, the very soft um, uh, wool together with some silk to to you know structure it more, and that wool is like you won't <laughs> believe how fantastic it is like super gourmet wool uh, wool yarns. But anyway, <laughs> so what we wanted to do is look at at some of these problematic you know some some of the the wool was pigmented. So the industry didn't really want it. Uh, and then some of the wool, which was uh, from um, the, the spell sheep, which are sort of the, the cousin of the, the Old Norse uh, breed, uh, was uh, disappearing uh, more and more and the quality was getting uh, uh, worse. Uh, and the, the spinners were complaining that the, the farmers weren't taking well enough care of the wool. So we really had to go in and, and educate the farmers how to take better care of the wool so that the industry could use it. So um, uh, this project was over four years long and um, had lots of work packages. And again, it was Ingen Grimstakrep who was, who was leading uh, the project uh, from SIPO. 
uh, and um, uh, at the end of the project, it, it was like there were so many different new uh, uh, products coming out that were using Norwegian wool. It was like, oh, that's a new one. There's a new one. Oh my God, they're using Norwegian wool. <laughs> So it was like if if we had done an exhibit at the end of that project, we would have filled a whole museum, you know, uh, because everything had changed around. And we uh, we had sports brands, uh, you know, using this old Norse uh, wool, uh, which everybody had said was impossible to use in the, in industrially produced uh, products. But no, it wasn't. Not if you use the lamb's wool from from the, the breed, and you had to share it at a specific time before it started felting itself on, on the sheep. So that everybody learned so much because, uh, uh, you know, that you ha if you did things at the right point in time, instead of, at a, you know, two weeks later, it made all the difference in the world. Uh, and so uh, both the farmers and, uh, and everybody throughout the value chain has learned so much now uh, that, you know, all this knowledge uh, had disappeared uh, because everything had become just, you know, mechanical and things were done in the same way and uh, anything that was problematic you didn't do <clears throat> instead of actually looking at it and figuring out, you know, if you do it this way instead of that way, it could actually work. So was it a matter that the industry, although you had the luxury that all these different actors of the supply chain were still there, but they weren't talking to each other? Yeah. Enough. It was you had to create, you know, the, the spaces and the room where they weren't necessarily competitors uh, anymore, but where they could actually talk together and, and say that, you know, I've been wondering, uh, have you been thinking about this and not be afraid that, you know, their ideas would be stolen, uh, that it would be all about cooperation uh, and that everybody would win if you started uh, that type of dialogue. So it was, it was uh, uh, creating platforms and networks that actually function for, for the, the industry. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's what was the major takeaway from, from the Cruise project was that if you don't have that type of co uh, cooperation, you're not going to get anywhere. You really mm. need for everybody to, to talk uh, and and be honest about you know their, uh, where they're failing, uh, mistakes they've made uh, because <laughs> you learn so much from your mistakes you know and and be honest about it and say you know we tried this route and it nope didn't work. <laughs> yeah, and I guess also changing back because they've been getting used to maybe always importing wool and doing hmm. it certain way and then you have to actually yeah make that decision to change and do it differently again. Yeah, and I, we saw that specifically with, for example, uh, um, there's a, a weaving mill in uh, Lillehammer uh, called Gubranstalens uh, Ulvarefabrik, which is the <laughs> wool, woolen mill in um, Gubranstal. Um, and they had uh, only used imported uh, wool for forever and ever. And when uh, Ingen and I visited them so many years ago, they were like, we walked into the meeting room and they were like, uh, now we're going to explain why we can't use Norwegian wool. <laughs> we're like, uh, that's not why we're here, but okay, tell us. <laughs> and they gave us this spiel for like uh, 15 minutes about that. It wasn't wide enough. There were too much vegetable matter. <laughs> it was everything, everything was problematic. 
<laughs> and now suddenly they're <laughs> using Norwegian wool in, in the, the in, uh, textiles for the, the national costumes. Uh, and it's, uh, there's not really any major problems. <laughs> oh, great. Well, that's a true success story there. <laughs> Wonderful. And because you're all about wonderful names of your project projects, <laughs> we have another great name that's called is called Amazing Grazing. Yeah. And that looks more at regenerative farming. So let's dive into that one. Yeah. Uh, well, we're working on that uh, application right now. So we don't know. We, we already uh, uh, sent it in once to to one uh, um, uh, call for uh, for. Um, projects and it was rejected there. But uh, I think we understand uh, why it was rejected because it didn't really fit the call really well. But this call is about rangeland grazing uh, and how to use um, what you could, you could probably call it, uh, you know, feed mileage in a way of thinking. Because um, uh, in most uh, modern industrial farming, uh, you're importing a lot of feed uh, from uh, soya, for example, uh, produced in the Amazon. And we all know uh, that uh, this is not the way to do it because they're mowing down the trees in the Amazon to build um, a large uh, production uh, you know, areas for soy. And this is not gaining uh, the, the, uh, the world at all. So, uh, uh, my husband is cleaning for a run, so I just have to wave goodbye. <laughs> we had our cabin in the mountains, so um, yeah. But anyway, so um, uh, we, we uh, especially sheep uh, in Norway, uh, are uh, graze in the mountains and in the hills and in the forest uh, and along the fjords uh, from uh, May and until uh, late August. And so um, that is one of the reasons why we have a cultural landscape uh, still here and that we can actually go you know, into the mountains hiking uh, because they are taking care of the landscape. And we see now more and more that even uh, they're sending the cows uh, into the mountains and the hills and, and uh, the forest much more than they have uh, the last maybe 20 years because um, uh, Norway was, was sort of growing over, you know, uh, it was becoming less and less accessible uh, because, uh, you know, plants just uh, go crazy if they have a chance, but if a cow or a sheep or a goat comes along and grazes them, then uh, you're also working with a natural carbon cycle. Uh, so that the, the whole discussion about the, the methane from these uh, animals that are making use of the grass and, and the nature changes in a way if you're looking at it from a carbon cycle or nature's carbon cycle uh, perspective. And, and um, we've heard, you know, Alan Savaroy talk about this, but uh, even more so uh, Rebecca Burgess who started Fibershed uh, in California. Yeah, I think it was in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, uh, has been working very much with this and she has uh, been working with Stanford and Berkeley and they done reports where they, they measure the carbon in the soil, uh, they measure the increased uh, carbon in the soil through the, the proper grazing 
uh, methods that uh, are mimicking more what, what wild herds uh, did in before. We as humans uh, sadly um, killed them off. So now one, uh, one uses the grazing animals to, to replicate this. And that's uh, the whole idea be behind regenerative um, uh, grazing and regenerative farming is that you're using the natural carbon sink of the soil. Uh, and it's the, one of the biggest sinks that you actually can actively use. So that if you're working in, with it in a proper way, you're being uh, neutral or even, uh, you know, sequestering uh, carbon. But even more so uh, now that the whole issue around biodiversity is really coming up to, to um, the forefront of the discussion. And everybody from the UN to the EU is saying that the, the only focusing on carbon is wrong. We have to look at this whole system. system. Uh, all, and especially the biodiversity, because that's where we're really, 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 really hurting now. Um, uh, then you're also addressing this, because with, with the proper grazing, you're actually um, taking care of, of uh, biodiversity. In, in, uh, the, uh, and for the most part, one is talking then about so-called biospheres, which is, um, uh, if you think about the atmosphere, which is the air. A biosphere will be everything from so and so many meters up into the air and all the way down through the land and then into the water. That's a biosphere. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is a new thing that the UN is working on is, is creating biosphere areas. And so in outside of Bergen, they have the first one in Norway now and they're working then with the, with the local sheep uh, and how they contribute to uh, positive development in the biosphere. And so they even developed a wool route there. So one can travel and follow in, uh, you know, the wool from the sheep and, and yeah, to the different factories that are outside of Bergen that work with uh, wool. So with amazing grazing, what, what you, will you be working on or plan? Then uh, we will be working on uh, the different products from the sheep. It's not just, it's not only about the wool, it's about, um, uh, also the meat uh, and other products that you're, the skins, uh, the fleeces uh, that are super popular at the, you know, here at the cabin, I don't know how many of those, you know, uh, sheep fleeces we have here that we just, you know, sit on and they're super cozy. Um, but um, um, the, the whole object then is that, uh, how, how will the consumer or the, uh, the end user of the, the product understand that they, by buying uh, the grass fed, you know, it, it often that you s one sells meat as grass fed, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of that it's, it's been fed uh, other types of feed. Uh, and how, how can you tell the end user that they are actually contributing positively to to uh, good grazing practices and uh, to uh, you know higher quality products uh, that come from this type of um, uh, grazing. So contribution. Because there's no, there's no yeah there's no labeling system for it. Or, so okay. we don't know if la labels are or what will be the end mm. use for this. It might be other types of information sharing. 
Okay. Okay. Well, I think that sounds like a very interesting and, and I think what you're saying that there's more and more focus on now on biodiversity, biosphere mm -hmm. health um, and, and yeah, with the solution being regenerative farming. So yeah, I think because uh, I think, you know, the way that uh, every, everybody's seeing now the results of industrial farming uh, with the runoffs from the fertilizers and, uh, and all the problems, uh, these fantastic innovations and um, technical solutions and everything that they have, are creating more problems than they're solving. Mm. So it's, it's sort of, okay, they did stuff uh, right. 100 years ago <laughs> so we have to go back and and actually to fetch up uh, a lot of the knowledge that our forefathers you know my my grandfather was a farmer um that they had and that you know and how they used everything from the farm you know nothing went to waste you just waste didn't exist you know um and and they grew linen on the farm i have a um a tablecloth here from my grandmother that she wove uh, from the linen that they grew on the farm uh, and um, I you know uh, the the wool sweaters that uh, my aunt knitted and uh, you know they're still around 50 years after she knitted them yeah I, I face that a lot now in, in this house that I live in now it was built by my grandfather in 1936 and then there's several things like in the cellar uh, where we keep saying well they were quite clever back then you know they <laughs> <Yes>. were like, <laughs> thinking so one is that they they actually led the rainwater into the house into a bit big basin like water mm -hmm. collection and then wash the wool uh, not the wool wash their clothes with mm. it so they were using and collecting rainwater so mm. there's a lot of things yeah when we look at at into the past that actually are becoming now quite popular or we can yeah and, uh, and uh, we see that you know in all these uh, even in in the urban settings you know where people are used to to buying everything you know now they're starting more bartering systems they're starting cooperatives um with uh, uh, yeah, producing their own food their own produce uh and so uh, you know it's uh, it's changing slowly and it's changed a lot in the in the food sector but i think we see the next area now as being uh textiles and and uh, clothing. Uh, you know clothing and mm. uh, interiors uh because uh, especially now with the covid 19 crisis that whole uh global system more or less collapsed people stopped you know buying stuff because they didn't they didn't have an occasion to wear the new dress uh they were all sitting at home doing zoom meetings <laughs> <laughs> and there they could wear their comfy uh, <laughs> clothes uh, and not worry too much about uh having something new all the time uh and so the whole whole way of looking at uh, how we consume and how we use things and and uh has has changed and we don't know you know uh, when we're going back to normal and and we're for certain not going back to the old normal uh, uh, because everybody's been or has had a lot of time to think about uh, how how and what they consume and uh, how they use the stuff they already have and what is important huh? and what is important to them mm. you know yeah. 
So uh, uh, I think uh, we're at sort of a critical point in history right now, where mm. uh, if if we choose the right path out of it, then uh, our lives will become uh, much richer and much better. Yeah, and that actually leads quite well into the last <laughs> topic we <laughs> just want to touch on quickly, and that's uh, that you are a member of the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion. And I think what you just said kind of already is probably something you are discussing in that group. So give us a little bit of a insight what that group is about and the topics you're looking at. Yeah, it's um, it's a group that was uh, started by Kate Fletcher, who's a professor in the, in the UK and rather famous because she's written several books about sustainability. And she's been part of the, we've been very privileged because she's been part of the Cruise uh, project. Uh, and um, it was and together with a Swedish uh, professor called Matilda Tan and a Finnish uh, professor called Timo Rissanen, uh, who's based in, uh, he's been based in New York, but he's actually now moving to Australia. Uh, and Linda Gross, who uh, is based in California, who's uh, teaching there at the uh, university. And um, she used to work uh, with uh, different uh, design companies. She worked with Esprit for many years and has very uh, um, lots of knowledge about the whole value chain and working with uh, natural fibers. And so, uh, this why we started um, uh, uh, this organization uh, was it was sort of a, a very frustrating moment. Uh, I, I think a lot of people remember when the global fashion agenda held the um, Copenhagen Fashion Summit some years back and issued uh, the first Pulse report, uh, where they said that uh, one of the, the main takeaways from that report was that we all have to start wearing recycled plastic. Mm -hmm. And we were like, no, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we really don't have to wear recycled plastic at all. Uh, we need to talk about uh, 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 something that is for many uncomfortable to talk about, and that is degrowth. We need to consume less because the you know the whole fashion industry was just growing in leaps and bounds. Of course, COVID nineteen changed that drastically, uh, with all the problems uh, that have, that has resulted in. Uh, but uh, when it comes to um, um, uh, the whole degrowth discussion, it's, it's not about, um, uh, it's not about uh, sort of having less, that, that's not at the core of it. It's, it's, it's sort of scaling everything down to, to become, so that the world becomes more equitable. Because the way the, the system has been is that somebody on the other side of the earth has produced uh, stuff for us very cheaply that we have bought at way too low prices uh, and it has uh, it has created a system where for example an expensive quality um, raw material such as wool is punished because it is expensive as a raw material while a cheap raw material like uh, uh, polyester is um, not punished quite the opposite uh, because it starts out so cheap, and then when you add the cheap labor on top of that, you're you're sort of getting this um, every every time you know through the value chain, 
the price just sort of goes a little bit, 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 a little bit up. Not, it doesn't, if you're starting with the very expensive wool, it goes like that, you know, and you have expensive labor. So when you then come to the store and they, you know, triple the price in the store and, and you add the, the, uh, the uh, VAT on that again, which in Norway is 25%, you know, if you started out with something that was expensive from the start, you're really, really making it expensive at the, at the end when, when the, the consumer is buying it. Well, then of course we know Target, H&M, uh, all these uh, chains uh, who've uh, been spewing out uh, uh, fast fashion where uh, after maybe a month it goes on sale uh, and uh, the you know it's uh, we've sort of made the consumer addicted to the, the constant change the constant newness uh, and this is what the, the Union on Concerned Researchers in Fashion really want to look at they want to look at how can you make a systemic change uh, so that um, uh, things are more equitable around the world, that people have access to what they actually need uh, and not, uh, we in the Western world have access to way too much while people in, in uh, the Far East, way too little. Uh, and we need to even the balances out. Uh, and there are, we have the example, for example, now with, with Amsterdam, who have adopted the donut economy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that type of thinking is, is and also the, the thinking around uh, the way that Fibershed is thinking, that you, you, you have more local communities uh, offering services to each other. Um, uh, and there was just now an article in uh, can a Canadian newspaper about the local fiber shed in, in Canada. Uh, I think it was a quite a long article, uh, but it explains it really well how you, you're looking at the way that food has become more, you know, slow food, the slow food movement, uh, local food. Uh, and now this is, is, is moving over to the fiber uh, and the, the textile side. Uh, yeah. yeah, and are you also looking because when you said you know how how the prices for polyester garment were like so cheap, then what I'm always missing is then we we're not considering the costs of of once it's you being used and disposed of. Mm -hmm. um, so that cost and that then actually a you know fast fashion becomes quite expensive because yeah, and and, and there you know and it's not. Uh, it's not the company paying that that price now. It's uh, and it's the it's the earth paying paying the price. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, we have uh, Caring's uh, environmental profit and, and loss sort of way of, of putting a price on on everything. But that's not necessarily uh, how to do it. It's more that you know uh, maybe it's um, extended producer responsibility that they have to take their excuse the expression shit back <laughs> <laughs> if they're first producing it that they are the ones who have to become responsible for it uh, and of course in a way then that feeds into that of course recycled polyester is going to be the next big thing because <laughs> they're going to be getting a lot of polyester back uh, and so of course the the, so the the whole idea with the circular economy that you know keep keeping the plastic um, uh, always in, 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 uh, in use, uh, 
seems like a good idea except for one thing and that's the microplastics mm. um, because mm. if you're constantly keeping um <laughs> this plastic-based or oil-based um, uh, raw material in use, you're all the time adding to the microplastic uh, problem until they solve that, which we at this point in time don't know when will be. Uh, because it's not just the laundering, of course, it's also just wearing the clothes because uh, they sort of just, clothes lose microfibers all the time. This wool top will lose a lot of mic microfibers, but they're wool and they disintegrate. So, yeah. So that's a, a difference, but um, uh, so you know, scaling things down will solve a lot more problems than keeping the the polyester in, in use and recycled mm -hmm. to, uh, forever. Which uh, which just it it doesn't do anything about the volumes, you know, these huge volumes of clothing that are just being spewed out, and and now you have this, you know, all the clothes that weren't sold. Uh, because they didn't hit when they were supposed to hit the stores and uh, then they suddenly became unfashionable a few weeks later or a month or so later or two months later when they finally could arrive uh, at the store which then goes to show how how broken the whole system was yeah somewhere i read that and maybe you have the correct number that we actually right now have produced enough clothes for the entire world to close itself for the next 30 years or something like that yeah i don't i'm really bad on numbers yeah but, yeah, <laughs> but i'm sure you know it's like uh, yeah i was in a, a meeting um, the other day where uh, somebody suggested oh we should uh, produce a t-shirt so that uh, you know so and so much money from the proceeds of the sales of the t-shirt with the uh, with the um, uh, pay for this and that and then uh, you know to solve the problems <laughs> the world doesn't need another t-shirt <laughs> enough t-shirts to last us several lifetimes <laughs> yeah okay tuna so you said you're not good with numbers but you are good with words that's why we have all these wonderful uh, projects that not only have a great name but also great content and thanks so much for sharing all of that with us today um i will make sure to link to all the different mm. like websites but maybe just name one which one would you say is the best one to to read up more uh right now i think uh union of concern researchers in fashion uh, they have a website it's they're going to create a new much better website after a while but i think it, there's a lot of um, interesting things that are posted there and also uh, fiber shed Uh, their website, uh, which is full of fantastic information. Um, okay. Yeah. Perfect. So thank you so much, Tuno, for your time yeah. and sharing all these insights with us. And then I'm sure we'll catch up in some time again. Yes. And thank you, Lisa. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> so I do hope you enjoyed our discussion, which was a little bit longer than uh, our previous episodes. But I think there were so many helpful insights that you hopefully enjoyed it all the way to the end. If you want to find out more, then head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 113. And I will be also linking there to all the different projects we discussed and websites, etc. So you find it much more easier to find everything we discussed. I hope you 
will join us again in two weeks time when I will be talking to John Parkinson. He runs a recycling business uh, where he makes out of old wool garments recycled wool yarn. And yeah, that was also a very interesting discussion I had with John and I hope you will be joining us in two weeks time. Thanks for listening and bye for now.